Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real, and I'm grateful for the chance to sit down with you today. We've been doing this series, so we're, I think, a couple of episodes in, where we're using Chris Jensen's book, Obscure Mormon Doctrine, to have a conversation around specific issues in Mormonism, specific topics, really, and uh, to ask ourselves the question, is the beliefs that we hold or held as Mormons, are they rational? And what I've always, and I'll have to probably preface each episode this way, but what I mean by that is we all get to believe whatever we want to believe, but there's also a recognition of whether said belief is rational, meaning that does that conclusion based on the data that's available does that conclusion require the least amount of allowances and conjecture? So whenever we run into anything, there's data for all kinds of things. Um, you know, Say somebody robbed a bank and you're like, hey, the data is that his fingerprints are on the counter. Um, we've got video footage of him here. Uh, but then he says, you go to his house and you know all the evidence is against him. But he he says, look, I've got an alibi. My wife says that I was here. And his wife does say that, in fact. The reality is the evidence for him robbing the bank is so significantly strong that it doesn't matter what his wife says. He's going to be found guilty because he's on the video footage. He doesn't have a twin brother. His fingerprints are on the counter. There's enough stuff that's going to be put together that's going to convict him. And yet some people will still believe that he didn't rob the bank. And, and so when we tackle these issues inside Mormonism, it's not about like, is there some degree of evidence that could support one's faithful belief? It's really taking a look at how much conjecture and allowances are required to maintain a faithful belief in the collective Mormonism, let alone any small issue. And uh, today's episode probably won't be super long. We're going to be doing Chapter 7, America, United States. Um, and here are some of the things that uh, Chris Jensen says, and then I'll share a few thoughts along the way as we point these out. The first one is he notes that uh, the Book of Mormon is alleged to have taken place excuse me, legend to taken place in North and South America somewhere. Now, we don't know if it's the entire North and South America, which is absurd based on the Book of Mormon text. We don't know if it's the heartland theory. We don't know if it's Central South America in the Mesoamerica setting. But we, we are told and we do believe as Mormons that it occurred in somewhere inside the continents of North and South America um, it mentions here that uh, the book in the Book of Mormon, Christ visited peoples in the Americas after his resurrection. And I want to simply spend a few minutes here talking about this idea of Christ visiting the Americas in the Book of Mormon. When, uh, if you read the New Testament without your Mormon lens, you will see a certain kind of Jesus, um, who he interacts with how he interacts with them, which folks he has patience with and uh, makes space for them to not exactly be the way the religious authorities want those folks to be. 
and who he's hard on, who he is difficult with, who he who he feels picked on by, and who he is criticizing. Um, what kinds of miracles he does and who he does them for. There are lots of ways in which the Jesus of the New Testament, when you use the New Testament as a standalone um, text for who Jesus is, and then juxtapose that against um, the Jesus that Mormonism suggests that Jesus is, those are different. And in this particular point where Jesus comes to the Americas somewhere and visits the Nephites uh, in Lamanites, of course, but visits the Nephites and who that Jesus is. And, and let me set it up this way. Um, there are good people and bad people in the Americas. If the Book of Mormon's true, we're just going to take it that way for a moment. There are good people and there are bad people on the Americas. And when Christ dies in the old world, the Book of Mormon records that there were three nights of darkness. Just FYI, when you understand science and why the earth is lit up in one place and then dark on the other side of the globe because the earth is in orbit around the sun, and as it is moving around the sun, it is also moving uh, around in and of itself. So it's moving around and coming back, right? And so we understand, like, we look up in the morning and the sun's rising, at night it's falling, but when it's, you know, noonday sun or whatever, 2 p.m. sun at, at, in, in my place in southern Utah, it is, you know, middle of the night uh, on the other side of the globe. And so this idea that there were three days of darkness when Jesus uh, died and was essentially in the tomb, uh, scientifically, that's absurd. We talked a couple episodes ago about how Mormonism taught through its early leaders, such as Brigham Young, that the planet Earth was uh, somewhere near Heavenly Father and his planet and the star Kolob, and then was placed into this orbit when Adam and Eve fell. Again, Science plays a big role in how we see the world, and it's easy for members of the church to discount science and say science is hogwash. It's just as it requires just as much faith as belief in Mormonism or belief in some other religion. And I'm just telling you that's just not true. It's the way our brain tries to make sense of the conflicting data. It's the way our brain tries to make sense of the majority of experts in any particular field disagreeing with the stances we take in our religion. But again, we're here not to debate which beliefs are true and which ones are false, but rather which beliefs are irrational and which ones aren't. And to believe that there were three days of darkness on one side of the earth that is unrecorded anywhere else is irrational. There isn't really any good explanation for why there would be three days of darkness, why that three days of darkness would be in the new world, and why there wasn't any recording of three days of darkness in the old world, what it would take for there to be three days of darkness, and whether such is even feasible in uh, the moment that we're talking about where there is, at least to some degree, verifiable, recordable history. Um 
in various places across the world that seem to have no indication of three days of darkness. On top of that, you have uh, all of this turmoil that happens in the Book of Mormon, where uh, it's dark, there are all these fires, essentially people are being uh, killed by the environment, and then suddenly Jesus shows up, um, and you read the Book of Mormon, and you're in your head going like, it sounds like what I'm being told is that the bad people are being killed, and the good people are being left alive, so that when Jesus comes, the people who've had their hearts prepared are ready for him. But again, use common sense, use logic. If something like what the Book of Mormon describes in Third Nephi actually occurred, how would those sort of natural cataclysmic events be able to sort out the good people from the bad people? And the moment you allow yourself to recognize that a rational person would recognize that both the bad and good people would be harmed by such cataclysmic events just before Christ comes to the new world to visit the Nephites, you then recognize, like, this makes no sense, that God is no respecter of persons, God values righteousness, God gives us agency, to make choices, to choose good and bad, and that God is uh, pouring his curses upon the bad and blessing uh, the righteous. But as soon as you recognize that Jesus's the preparation for Christ coming to the new world is all of this cataclysmic, horrible events, and you recognize like the most rational thing by far is that there's no way to not be indiscriminate about who gets killed and who doesn't, you recognize that innocent men, women, and children would have certainly been killed by these events in preparation for Christ coming. It also is absolutely true that you wouldn't have been able to kill every person who wasn't righteous, all the bad people, all the naysayers, all the ones who didn't believe and um, were making a, uh, unhealthy choices and unrighteous choices, some of those would have been left alive. And so this, this idea of, you know, the Book of Mormon Christ being different than the New Testament Christ, the things that God and Christ were willing to do to the Nephites and Lamanites to prepare that space for Christ to come again and talk to them and to visit with them, it doesn't make a lot of real sense. And then you add on top of it, all of the cataclysmic events as supernatural events that are suddenly placed onto the new world because Christ is about to come visit them. And you then have, it requires you then to believe in kind of a supernatural influence on events like this happening. And again, based on science and our understanding of how the world works, what miracles occur in less verifiable times of history versus more verifiable times of history. For instance, you look at your quorum of the 12 or the top 15 men today, and they're just not walking around healing people. Um, Elder Bednar says that it's better to have faith not to be healed. That's the, that's the greater faith. Um, there have been multiple stories told in conference of people who were sick or dying or had some tragic thing happen to them. And in no instance are these folks ever healed. Instead, um, leaders of the church go and visit 
with them just prior to their dying, sometimes even giving them a blessing, but they still die nonetheless. And if you use your logical, rational brain, you recognize that in 2022, nobody has their ear restored when it's cut off. Nobody has an eye that's magically placed back in when their eye was plucked out as a kid. Nobody regrows an arm when they get a blessing after losing an arm. Those sorts of supernatural acts don't seem to really occur anymore. And we can clearly see when they stop, which is the moment we enter an age of verifiable, strongly verifiable history, those sorts of miracles on any sort of scale that's recognized comes to an end. Um, there's this, he says, kept hidden. He goes, the Americas were kept hidden from the world by God until the timing was right to reveal them. Quote, for centuries, the Lord kept America hidden in the hollow of his hand until the time was right to unveil her for her destiny in the last days. Unquote. The Book of Mormon expresses similar sentiments. Quote, it is wisdom that this land should be kept as yet from the knowledge of other nations. For behold, many nations would overrun the land and there would be no place for an inheritance. Um, the idea that the Americas were kept empty until the Nephites or Lamanites get there is in direct contradiction with the apologetic argument that there were already people there. In other words, the apologists want to play both sides of the coin. They want to have it both ways. The Book of Mormon doesn't really hold up uh, in terms of population growth and in you know 50 other ways, but the, the one that comes to mind easily is population growth. And so what apologists have done inside the church is said, oh, look, I, I know it doesn't directly say so in the Book of Mormon, but trust us, the best explanation is that there were already people in the Americas. Um, and science says that the Americas absolutely were already peopled, that people came over on the uh, Asiatic line, uh, land bridge um, I forget the, the specific name, but they came over on the Asiatic land bridge and came over to the Americas and that folks with Asian descent were already here. We will find the church will somewhat acknowledge that in our next conversation when we talk about the Native Americans and the Lamanites as two different labels and what the church has said on the issue of what most of the world would call the indigenous people uh, American Indians, Native Americans, um, versus the church's label that they are Lamanites. They are the uh, descendants of the Lamanites. And and the, the trouble, again, going back to the, what we're talking about, this idea that the Americas were kept hidden is the idea that the Americas were empty until the Nephites and Lamanites get here. The moment you recognize that there were other peoples here, they came from other places and they made their home here in the Americas. And even if you want to argue that Nephi and Laman and Lemuel and their father Lehi and, and Sarah or Sariah, 
that they were not the first ones here, but intermixed with this much larger population, which is the only way, by the way, that the apologists can reasonably explain the population growth. It's the reason they create the argument. And then you say, but wait a minute, Mormonism taught that the Americas were kept hidden from the world until the timing was right to reveal them. Um, and again, you have quotes by early church leaders, and you have quotes within the Book of Mormon itself that indicate that this land was empty when they got here. The Book of Mormon also seems to insinuate that it's empty. Again, reading into it that there is already an existing population is is you going beyond the mark. It's you adding conjecture and allowances because other things in the book don't add up. So you either have to pick that the Americas were kept hidden or you have to pick that the Americas were not kept hidden. You have to pick that there were people not here or you have to pick that there were people here. And you can't have it both ways and every time you try to have it both ways, do you recognize that you are adding conjecture and allowances in order to make your argument work? Okay. The next section he talks about is Columbus and the pilgrims are foreseen. Nephi in the Book of Mormon foresaw that Columbus and other early settlers who came to the Americas would be inspired by the Spirit of God to make the journey. And the Book of Mormon says, and I looked and beheld a man, and, and it means Columbus only because the church, the, the data seems to fit Columbus, and the church uh, imposes that it was Columbus. Um, so, and I looked and beheld a man among the Gentiles who was separated from the seed of my brethren by the many waters. And I beheld the Spirit of God that it came down and wrought upon the man, and he went forth upon the many waters, even unto the seed of my brethren, American Indians, who were in the promised land, America. And I beheld the Spirit of God that it was wrought upon other Gentiles, and they went forth out of captivity upon the many waters. I simply want to note here that uh, for, for whatever reason, and we can talk about what is the most rational reason, for whatever reason, it is absolutely a fact that the Book of Mormon does decently well at creating prophecies, alleged prophecies that um, are told to that they will happen prior to the life of Joseph Smith. And in the story, those things seem to come to fruition. In other words, the Book of Mormon claims to be an ancient text that is making prophecies about future events. The alleged future events that occur before the life of Joseph Smith seem to work out pretty decent. The Book of Mormon seems to steer clear away or to be extremely vague or to um, not really want to venture out at making any prophecies that would happen after the life of Joseph Smith. And the most rational uh, conclusion on that, once you understand all the other data too, is that if Joseph Smith or someone contemporary to him is writing the Book of Mormon, they sure as hell won't be any good at creating and uh, creating prophecies that happen uh, post Book of Mormon writing 
dictation, production, publishing. And so if you understand the Book of Mormon as a contemporary modern pseudopigrapha, it makes perfect sense that whoever the author of the Book of Mormon is, that they would steer clear away from creating prophecies that they don't have control over. It's also very easy for a text that's dictated and published in 1827 to 1830 to, uh, to pretend to be the voice of ancient authors and then to have prophecies in them that occur prior to the dictation and publishing of the Book of Mormon, but for which uh, appear, if understood as an ancient text, to be prophesying about things after those ancient authors had lived their life. Again, a rational mind has to look at that and try to figure out why it is so bold at predicting things prior to the life of Joseph Smith and why doing so after his life seems non-existent within the book. The second thing is this idea of Columbus having the spirit of God and being on, you know, God's mission to go find the Americas. When you understand who Christopher Columbus really was, when you dive into the factual history of his motives, uh, the things he did, the harm and trauma he caused to other human beings, it becomes much more difficult to, to perceive him as having the Spirit with him, having the Holy Ghost. Because Mormonism hinges the Holy Ghost on one being righteous. And much of Columbus's motives and the actual acts that he carried out were anything but righteousness. And so that also becomes problematic. Um, the Book of Mormon presents a, a much more whitewashed version of Columbus than the real man, but we would expect such from a contemporary author such as Joseph Smith or someone else, again, contemporary to him, um, writing the book at the time of its dictation. Um, it talks about God's hand in U.S. history, that you know this country was the freest place to be. I simply want to note a couple of things here, which is when you look at the best places to live in the world, the United States isn't at the top of the list. It almost never makes the top 10. In fact, I saw a new list yesterday that had been just done, and there were 11 places because there were two tied for 10th. And of the 11 places, not a single one of them was in the United States. There are also other studies done that um, share which places on planet Earth are the best places to be. They use lots of factors, healthcare, job opportunities, um, uh, uh, access to um, you know, certain pleasures, uh, access to uh, you know, certain freedoms, uh, but they go through, you know, again, healthcare, employment, uh, all kinds of different things, uh, standard work week. And what you find is that the best countries on earth, the best places to live are these European countries like uh, Switzerland, uh, Netherlands, um, those sort of places, uh, Denmark, and, and when you recognize that, again, we grow up in this country with a story 
about how great America is. But when we actually compare the United States of America, and that doesn't even include Canada, uh, you know, Mexico, Central America, all the places in South America, when you take all that into account, all the various factors that uh, benefit someone being happy and being free, America's just not at the top of the list. Most research puts America somewhere near 14th or 17th best place in the world to be. And, and you know, then you've got to have the argument about whether Canada is better or worse. Is Mexico better or worse? Is Guatemala better or worse? The Honduras better or worse? Um, this idea that America is the best country on earth is also a myth. And the data doesn't support that. Um, violence is another factor, you know, gun violence and sexual assault and whatever other things we want to put. This just isn't the best place to be, although certainly a good place, um, you know, in the top 20, uh, but not the best. And so this idea that America is this grand place, the only place it could have been, um, the only place this could have occurred, that the Book of Mormon could have been restored, that, that just isn't true. And um, he, he goes through a few other things, but I don't really see any major notes there. When I get to the end, he's got these uh, three or four headlines here. He says, American Indians will repossess. One day, the American Indians will be restored to favor with God and given back their land. We'll go into that a little more in the next chapter as we talk about the Native Americans and the Lamanites as labels. But I just want to note that uh, even the church today acknowledges that DNA research uh, shows that far and wide, almost entirely Native Americans are made up of Asian DNA. There isn't any way to pinpoint how far, if the Book of Mormon is true, how far Lehi's DNA pervaded the larger population. Again, apologists state that there had to have been existing population here. It's the only way to explain population growth that has battles in the millions by the time we get to certain parts of the Book of Mormon. But if we don't know who the Lamanites are, and the, and the church, by the way, acknowledges this. If you go to the gospel topic essays and you look for the essay on DNA in the Book of Mormon, you'll find that while the church offers a bunch of uh, a, a conjecture and inserts a lot of allowances in order to make the argument at least be allowed to still stand that possibly the Native Americans are Lamanites. Um, you have to recognize that they're almost at every important point agreeing that uh, we cannot know who a Lamanite is anymore. The, the trouble is that the Native Americans are going to repossess, and I shouldn't say that, the Nephites slash Lamanites, and really it's the Lamanites because all the Nephites were killed off. The Lamanites, aka the Native Americans, are going to repossess the Americas and be given back their land. Now, first off, in terms of the politics of all of it, that's not going to happen. And your common sense says that that's not going to happen. 
the United States of America isn't just going to walk away and suddenly all of these Native American tribes are going to come forward and just repossess the Americas and the rest of us are just going to get out or play by their terms. That It's unfortunate what happened to them, by the way. And it's atrocious, the degree of genocide and uh, relocation that occurred with the Native Americans. It was their land first. But this idea that Mormonism says that they will come back into possession of their lands, that really doesn't make any sense based on what we know about how things work. Um, the chances of that are essentially slim to none and slim just left the building. But once you recognize that even the LDS church doesn't know who the Lamanites are anymore, then this idea that we're going to be able to pinpoint a certain group of people and they're going to repossess the land makes no sense at all. He says the location of the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden was located in the United States in what is now the state of Missouri. By the way, again, the church um, now says something to the effect of we no longer are certain where the Garden of Eden was. There is lots of speculation, but we don't know. And so this idea that, you know, the early church doctrine theology, because of Adam Andeaman in Missouri, because of other statements about uh, the global flood and Noah taking off from the Americas and landing somewhere on the other side of the planet, these become absurd once you recognize that the church doesn't even know where these locations are anymore and doesn't want them to play any sort of vital role in LDS theology going forward. Let me point this one out. The location from which Noah set sail. Missouri is also the location from which Noah set sail, set off in his ark when the earth was flooded. So I'm going to read you a quote because this will come into play later. A lot of these issues are interconnected with other issues. What you'll find from the apologists, those who defend the church, is that they like to isolate issues so that you can only address one at a time. The reason they do that is because different styles, different sorts of arguments, they would like to use on one issue and then would like to use a completely different one on another issue even though in Mormonism, all these things interconnect. So for instance, if you were to go to Fair Mormon and look up about a global flood, you'll find that Fair Mormon seems to insinuate and make a lot of strong space that, hey, the flood maybe wasn't global, probably wasn't global. It would have been a local flood. And yes, we agree that the science and the, the research and the data and the rational thinking would suggest that there's no way in hell there's a global flood and it was just a little local flood. But see, when you bring into it this issue um, of talking about the Americas, what we run into is, and I'll read it here on page 195 of his book. This is a different chapter, so we'll cover this later. But notice this quote. Uh, this was Brigham Young. Brigham Young said, In the beginning, after this earth was prepared for man, the Lord commenced his work upon what is now called the American continent, where the Garden of Eden was made. In the days of Noah, in the days of the floating of the ark, he took the people to another part of the earth. And that's Brigham Young, Journal of Discourses uh, 8, 
uh, page 195. And, and so simply to note, Brigham Young taught that Noah took off from the Americas, that the earth flooded completely, which allowed Noah to then set sail and land in uh, like Mount Ariad or some other place over there. But once you understand that the flood was a local flood and not a global flood, such becomes a lot more ridiculous. And by the way, a global flood is absolutely ridiculous. If you go into online and do a Google search for problems with a global flood, you will be confronted with so many issues that have to be overcome that you simply have to acknowledge that to maintain the idea of a global flood requires so much conjecture and so much allowances that it absolutely places your belief in such in the realm of absurd. Um, so recognize you either have to pick, was it a local flood or was it a global flood? And whichever one you land on, you have to hold to that. You'll often find when you ask apologists questions that they tell you the multiple views that are existing out there. One of the tricks is you have to get them to tell you what their personal view is and then impose that they hold to it. Because if they defend a global flood and then explain to you that there's also evidence that it's a local flood, notice they're shifting and moving. In order to solidify an argument, you have to hold to it. You can't maintain several hills. You have to pick a hill to die on. Um, Otherwise, you're basically saying anything goes. For example, if you look at the Book of Abraham gospel topic essay, the church offers three, four, five different solutions to the problem. Well, maybe it's a, a missing scroll, and maybe it's a catalyst theory. And whichever one you start to knock down, they'll just move over to the other. And then you knock that one down, and they just move back to the first one. And then you knock that one down again, and they go to the third one. And it's this game that gets played, but it doesn't deal with the data head on. It's always trying to obfuscate. It's always trying to deflect. It's always trying to distance itself from being accountable to the actual logical thinking that walks that argument to its logical end, paints it in a corner and destroys it. Um, it's the reason apologists won't sit down with folks like me or Radio Free Mormon or Jonathan Streeter. Uh, John DeLynn, and really sit and allow the questions to be walked out. If you go listen to Rodney Meldrum's, I think it's Rodney, uh, his interview with Mormon's uh, stories, John DeLynn, it's six hours long. And at every point, John and Kara are trying to get uh, Mr. Meldrum to um, state what his personal opinion is. And he'll often go off and tell you what all the different views are, what all the possibilities are. But in the end, if he holds to his view, his view is going to be easily knocked down or it's going to be seen by the collective audience as requiring so much conjecture and allowances that we all get to look at Mr. Meldrum and chuckle a little bit and go, that guy's kind of crazy. That guy's absurd. Well, Mormonism doesn't do much different than he does. It's always trying to explain all the possibilities so that it has a multitude of hills that it can go to, depending on which hill in this moment you pick on. And when you understand what the apologists are doing or what the church is doing, and you can start to go, look, we got to pick one. Are you in favor of the catalyst theory or are you in favor of the missing scroll? And now let's walk through the data that 
imposes that neither one of those works. So again, Brigham Young says that Noah took off from the Americas. Um, apologists argue that it wasn't a global flood. It was a local flood. I'm not saying those are impossible to reconcile, but they're more difficult to reconcile. And when I say that, you and I both understand at least uh, implicitly, if not explicitly, that when I say something is harder to reconcile, it means that I need more allowances, more loopholes, more conjecture to allow the less rational conclusion to still hold water, no pun intended, with Noah. And then um, the last thing it says here is future site of Zion. Missouri will also be the future site of New Zion during the millennium. You're telling me that when Jesus comes back, we are all, you know, all the believing members of the church and all the righteous on earth, uh, and certainly the church itself is going to move itself to Missouri. Think that through. And uh, I, I simply would say again, not that it's an impossible thing to, to believe in, but for the church to pick up its headquarters in Salt Lake City after building the City Creek Mall and all the investments it's done and all the property um, repair and improvements it's done in Salt Lake City. Uh, it, it's re, you know, redoing the temple so that they will last another, you know, couple hundred years. By the way, those temples were supposed to last into the millennium. God was supposed to, you know, keep those things. Uh, they were built as such to last essentially forever into the millennium. And they've been remodeled because they're just not holding up as we thought they should. Um, the idea that the church is going to move its headquarters to Missouri. Uh, have you ever been to Missouri? You ever been to Adamande Amon? There, it's just not uh, a vibrant place, weather-wise, environment-wise. Um, you really would have to go like, look, a lot of things are going to happen. You got to have faith. Just you know. God, God is uh, is is uh, works in mysterious ways. Um, I think it becomes really difficult to think the most rational thing that's going to happen is that the church is going to move itself to Missouri. I think it's the last place Christ wants to spend a thousand years. Um, that's it for this short chapter. We will pick up others here. Um, in fact, I'm hoping to record the Native American one um, today. So you'll probably see me in the same shirt. Um, but I hope this is helpful to everybody as you consider all these issues. And we'll go through this book. And then I've got a couple other books I think we'll try to poke through and have some of these same conversations. As these episodes start mounting up, you know, you can dismiss a few of the things I say, oh, Bill, you're really picking on that one. And that's just not, not as big a deal as you make it. That's fine. As we go over issue by issue, allow the things that don't add up well to start building in your mind. And as we get further in, start to recognize that, man, we really do require thousands and thousands of less than the most rational conclusion to happen so that our ultimate conclusion that the church is true can be maintained. With that, have a great day. Thank you so much. And if you're really enjoying these, please Go to Mormon Discussions, oops, sorry about that, mormondiscussionpodcast.org or 
mormondiscussions.org or md a few bucks um you probably still hear me there sorry about that um send a donation we really do operate on the funds of donors we pay our podcasters once they've been with us for a year we pay them a significant portion of the amount that comes into their podcast and uh as the executive director of mormon discussion and as one of its content creators i'm paid as well and we would very much appreciate any donations that help us to be financially supported so that we can continue to put our time and energy and resources into creating content that helps you to wrestle with, think about, deconstruct uh, Mormonism in such a way that you can make informed decisions going forward. Have a great day and uh, appreciate each and every one of you. If you have any questions, you can email me at mormondiscussionspodcast. So the Discussions and the podcast both have an S on the end. Mormon Discussions Podcasts at gmail.com.